When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. And honestly, I'm surprised that they have this high of a threshold for humiliation. It's so embarrassing. I think Jamie Raskin was spot on when he said that this impeachment inquiry really ended yesterday when we found out that we have a Russian asset that was foundational to this impeachment inquiry. Fox's Jessica Tarloff is right, of course, but the Republicans' utter humiliation has not will not stop them from carrying water for Russia and Trump. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me tonight as FBI inform as the FBI informant who lied to the FBI, Alexander Smirnov, is rearrested today. Also tonight, how Trump stole the Republican Party. His daughter-in-law says the party faithful would be happy to see their contributions used for Trump's legal bills. But we begin tonight with a question. How do you deal with dictators? Today, less than a week after the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, while imprisoned by Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's regime, President Biden met with Navalny's widow, Yulia, and daughter Dasha during a trip to California, expressing his condolences and admiration for Navalny's courage. Biden reiterated that he holds Putin responsible for Navalny's death and said a major sanctions package against Russia would be announced tomorrow. That is how a normal administration, Democrat or Republican, would typically respond to what Russia has done. But not today's Republican Party. They are, how shall we say, a different kettle of vodka. Take CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, the annual confab that's become a right-wing love fest for the man who made Navalny's murder all about him, Donald Trump. While the Republican Party falls in line with Trump's fondness for Russia's dictator, a short time ago, attendees heard from a different autocrat, this one from El Salvador. You've probably never heard of Nayib Bukele. He was just reelected in a curious landslide last month. He's also branded himself as the world's coolest dictator and a philosopher king. The cool part is debatable. The dictator part is real. Bukele is an elder millennial, a bro populist who loves Bitcoin and tweeting. But he has suppressed rights in his country under a state of emergency. He's cracked down on judicial independence. His war on gangs has jailed thousands of innocent people. He's bent on destroying democracy in El Salvador. Those are just some of the reasons human rights groups think he's a nightmare. But CPAC thinks he's a model for America. CPAC has long had a Eurasian dictator fetish. Hungary's Viktor Orban is a perennial CPAC favorite. And of course, there's Vlad Putin. But this year, America's right wing is going all in on the Latin American strongman model. Javier Millet, Argentina's self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist president, will speak on Saturday. The MAGA crowd surmises that if these two dictator types are sort of likable, particularly to misogynistic male incel voters like the ones who elected Millet, why not sell Trump as America's cool dictator? That started in earnest with the rollout of his tacky gold Trump high tops at SneakerCon for some outreach to young male attendees. 
after the limited edition $400 tea is for trees and sneakers sold out. A Fox commentator named Brandon Arroyo boasted about how they were a great way to attract the blacks. This is connecting with black America because they love sneakers. They're into sneakers. They love the you know, this is a big deal, certainly in, in the inner city. So when you have Trump roll out his sneaker line, they're like, wait a minute. This is cool. He's reaching them on a level that defies and is above politics. The culture always trumps politics. And Trump understands culture like no politician I've ever seen. Huh. Is that completely and cluelessly racist? Why, yes, it is. But this self-proclaimed expert on black voters based entirely on stereotypes he likely gleaned from old rap videos he binged on BET after dark, does have a point about the importance of the culture. Republicans have long since lost the culture, not just when it comes to entertainment, fashion, comedy, gender expression, women's right to be something other than incubators who make sandwiches on the side, civil rights, voting rights, and really everything about the world after 1930. So the ugly sneakers like recruiting tax-cut-loving rappers as Trump's new besties, are very intentional parts of the strategy to take back this country by pitching Trump as a dictator who's fun and cool. The kids love it. Because Republicans know they will never get consent to drag women and people of color and LGBTQ people back to the world pre-the World War II era through the ballot box. They're cruel and awful, but they can count. So they intend to take the culture backward by force and impose their brand of Christo-fascism on the majority over our objections. It's already happening in Alabama, where which threw which threw which threw open the doors to the theocratic future that MAGA fascists want this week. When the state Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker invoked God in deciding that frozen embryos should be considered children. Media Matters reports that Chief Justice Parker is a big believer in Christian nationalism and went on a QAnon conspiracist show to talk about it. Parker indicated that he is a proponent of the Seven Mountain Mandate, a theological approach that calls on Christians to impose fundamentalist values on all aspects of American life. He also claimed that God created government and said it's heartbreaking that we have let it go into the possession of others. So Chief Justice Parker's attempt at repossessing government means that the two largest IVF clinics in Alabama have now paused activities because they don't know their legal risks. It will only be a matter of time before Republicans impose the kind of Christian nationalist Gilead we already see in Alabama and Mississippi and Florida and Tennessee and Missouri and Oklahoma and Iowa on the rest of America. With a national 16-week abortion ban, the likely curtailment of women's access to contraception while forcing 12-year-olds to give birth after being raped, which is just was just this week, the New York Times reported that Trump is privately telling people he's on board with. Of course, subjugating women to become forced birth chattel isn't very cool dictator to anyone other than disaffected incels. So back to CPAC, where they're going overtime to sell Trump as the one true savior against the rest of us godless liberals. Trump's only crime is representing the American people first. They know a lot of these people are going to go to jail when Donald Trump gets elected. And I'm going to be right there helping. President Trump would declare him a terrorist organization. He would send a hellfire rocket down there. He would take the cartels out. The MAGA faithful at CPAC are also trying to up the cool dictator factor with this year's crop of Trump merch. Like the insurrection-themed pinball game, J6 Insurrection. 
that plays videos of the insurrection while you play the game. I'm sure the yucks are lost on the families of the law enforcement officers who died or were injured on January 6th. It's hard to think of anything more repulsive than to see the attempt to overthrow American democracy reduced to player mode, stop the steal. These people are telling you exactly who they are, folks. Here's what MAGA Pizzagate influencer Jack Prasobiak said at one of the breakout sessions today. Welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> We're here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to, forget, to get rid of it and replace it with, with this right here. We'll replace it with this right, right. here. Amen. That's right, because all glory, all glory is not to government, all glory to God. Mm. If their attempt to market dictatorship to Americans is successful, scaring is caring, we're in for a lot worse. As historian Nancy McLean writes in The New Republic, lurking behind the full frontal assault by Donald Trump and his enablers lies a far more far-reaching threat. If the Republicans gain control of both houses of Congress, expect a state-authorized constitutional convention to eviscerate core rights and protections most Americans hold dear. And Nancy McLean joins me now. She's the author of Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical rights stealth plan for America. Also joining me, former Republican congressman and MSNBC political analyst David Jolly. Nancy McLean, I want to let you say more. What is this plan for America that is lurking behind the 2024 election? Yes. Thank you, Joy. It's great to be with you again. So this is really uh, serious stuff. We are talking about uh, an incredibly radical vision of America that you just described, you know, was on display at the CPAC convention. But this time it would be made permanent by a nuclear option that exists in the Constitution's Article 5, which talks about how we amend uh, the Constitution. And that Constitution has been amended 27 times, um, most of them good by the people and things that (laughs) had full sunshine and lots of public discussion. If anything, you know, many have thought the Constitution is too hard to amend. Uh, But the the Constitution also has another um, measure in it that says that two-thirds of the states can convene, can demand that Congress convene a constitutional convention um, if they so authorize. And as we have been transfixed by uh, Donald Trump um, and other parts of the MAGA movement, in fact, the political right, and this is the combination of big money donors like the Koch Network, the U-Lanes, et cetera, uh, on the one hand, and then this MAGA base that you've described so well on the other. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble with the lighting here. Um, they have come together to push for this constitutional convention. They've been pushing it out to the states since 2013 through the American Legislative Exchange Council. They now claim, well, they now have 28 of the 34 authorizations needed. What's really frightening, though, over the last uh, year or two is that they have realized that they will never get to 34 honestly. <coughs> so they have come up with a new math that they call aggregation. They're going to take any authorization for a constitutional convention left on the books in America and use that in order to insist that a new Congress call this convention. And what is it that they want to do with it? What do they want to change about the Constitution? They want to radically transform it. The leader of this effort, a man named Mark Meckler, uh, formerly head of Tea Party Patriots, now head of the Convention of States efforts, has said that they seek to roll back 115 years of progressivism. Now, that sounds like big talk for a guy in a bar or something. But the fact of the matter is they have been steadily doing this 
our side has not been paying adequate attention. Uh, and if the Republicans manage to get hold of Congress and Mike Johnson is the Speaker of the House, he's a deep supporter. He unites both those wings mm-hmm. of the Republican Party, the fossil fuel billionaires with the theocrats. And he will, I believe, and so does Common Cause and others who study yeah. this, convene such a convention. So this is something that would take away, has the potential in the various uh, amendments they've proposed to undermine the the fiscal basis of Social Security and Medicare, to undermine long-established civil rights protections, to take away our capacity to protect the environment. So it could not be more serious. uh, And it's something that needs much more attention from all of us. Indeed. David Jolly, I call it repeal the 20th century, right? The right exactly. even, I think that's perfect. Right? The right has even joined uh, people like me in disliking Woodrow Wilson. I disliked him because he was a venal racist. They dislike him because of the income tax. And, and not only would they like to get rid of the income tax, they'd like to get rid of all regulation to allow complete drilling. They'd like to get rid of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the Voting Rights Act, um, you name it, uh, the ability of women to access abortion and contraception. They could do all of that if they got a hold of the Constitution. I just want to read to you what the Seven Mountains mandate is, because a lot of these people believe in it. And there's nothing wrong with believing in Christianity, but this is what they believe. The Seven Mountains mandate is a manifesto for evangelical Christians to conquer the proponency of the seven key facets of life, education, religion, family, business, government, entertainment, and media. They could sure do that if they had a, a complete power of the federal government, couldn't they? Yeah, they could join. And this is where the irony and hypocrisy is really so rich. You know, the in terms of rolling back the history of progressivism over the last 150 years, at its core, progressivism has been about advancing human liberty and individual rights and individual freedom. And that includes the basic freedoms that are already in the Constitution, from speech to religion to assembly and so forth. And so the irony and hypocrisy of this theocratic movement within the Republican Party is this. At its core, they are actually trying to empower government, not empower a free church and faith-based institutions, not empower evangelical America and the synagogues and the mosques to practice and celebrate their religious tenets. They are actually trying to empower the construct of the state, which if you ask any conservative or Republican, they would say, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to empower the state to actually control the lives of individuals, including on the basic teachings of religious tenets. And, you know, one of the disconnects I had with the Republican movement all along, whether it be on marriage equality or questions of reproductive freedom or or get to some hard questions of cultural equity and race, the role of the state is to create equity. And the and the result of that is an empowered church. And so this entire conservative movement could celebrate the church today and say, we don't need the government. All we need is the government to level the playing field. They're trying to use the government as a tool of religion. It's not only hypocrisy and wrong, but it's very dangerous. And it is a theocratic movement now within the party. Right, because Nancy, it is it is a specific you know vein of their version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's not all Christian churches. It's one specific far right wing Christian church that just so happens to disagree with the red letter Christians, the Jesus Christians, on things like I don't know, mm-hmm. should there be unions? Should they be allowed to organize? Should workers have any rights? Should women have any rights? Should people of color? They, they think no. They want the government to impose a their version of a Christian state. That is Gilead. 
They, this is coming from, yes, the white evangelical, uh, a, a form of Christianity that's unrecognizable to those of us who have studied the teachings of Jesus. You know, I mean, compassion, mercy, you know, doing unto the least of these as you would do unto me. You know, all those things are gone. And it is the, you know, idolatry of the nation, right? And of this absolute power, this violence, this vengeance, it, it's, it's foreign to, you know, Believing Christians, many of yeah. whom uh, I know and and respect, um, and yet it has swept white evangelical de- denominations. This has been going on now for decades, we know, but also it really took off um, between the Trump presidency, the COVID epidemic, when of they course. reacted after being told the government was going to hurt them for all these years, seeing yeah. their churches closed in order to protect their, their faithful. But yeah. many of the faithful were angry about that and went off to much more radical uh, religious leaders. So there's been that kind of hemorrhaging uh, within denominations in the faith. But, you know, I have read some things that are encouraging on this front, and one of them is they're losing their own children. Young people are walking in large numbers. They've lost about a third of their youth with this stuff because they can see it has nothing to do with the Jesus they were told about. And that that uh, is why they're trying to ban books because they are losing their children. I have one more note for you, David Jolly, and it is, of course, about Florida. I can't bring you on and I'll talk about Florida. Explain to me Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis has come out and he's led with the racism. He said, we have a diverse Republican Party. I want everyone in the fold. Don't get me wrong, but I want people representing 10. I don't want people representing 10, 15 percent of the party being in the driver's seat. He said on a call with supporters. So he's essentially saying, don't put a black or a brown or a woman (laughs) as the VP. And then after that, he said, you know, Trump might be, you know, he might have too much power to control things and do things that aren't so great when he if he becomes president, which is basically what Ron DeSantis did in Florida. Your thoughts on that? Governor DeSantis has used Florida as a mixing bowl to advance white Christian, traditional Orthodox, white evangelical religious orthodoxy by using the powers of the state. And if Donald Trump had figured that out first, he would do it at the federal level. What Ron DeSantis is doing, though, is telegraphing what Donald Trump can do to keep his coalition in place and keep DeSantis supporters now with Donald Trump. It is dangerous. It marginalizes communities. And it's why it's got to be shut down. Yeah. He said, pick a white guy or else, I guess. That's what he's saying. Nancy McLean, David Jolly, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, MAGA Republicans shift gears, saying the so-called informant that was feeding them Russian lies about the Bidens was not key to their efforts and that they're plowing ahead with this impeachment inquiry anyway. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
You would think that having been busted in a lie, and I mean busted, busted in humiliating fashion, like Republicans have been in their Don Quixote style quest to impeach Joe Biden by implicating him in a supposed Ukrainian bribery scheme with his son. You would think that you would say, okay, man, okay, let me cry, uncle. Show a little contrition and back down. To spare yourself more humiliation, if for no other reason. But not these MAGA Republicans. Nope. They'd rather blame everybody else. We never knew who the informant was. All we knew was what Christopher Ray said. Now we see that the FBI arrested him for lying. It doesn't make sense. It's not the same treatment that we saw when the FBI figured out that the, the Steele dossier. Who knows? Maybe this guy lied to the FBI. Maybe it's all, maybe they're right. But I just see a pattern that seems to be developing here over the last three presidential yeah. elections. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, it is absolutely wild to listen to these grown men refuse to acknowledge their obvious failure. But with this Republican Party, telling the truth is asking too much. What you get instead is peak gaslighting. These folks are angry that the FBI even talked to informant Alexander Smirnov. They blame the Department of Justice for arresting him for lying about the dates when he supposedly had contact with Joe and Hunter Biden, because those dates are the whole case. And they're doubling down because the lie just rings true in their heads and on Fox TV. Oh, and they blame the Democrats because this is Russia collusion 2.0. And they still can't accept that Russia collusion 1.0 actually happened. Frankly, when you model your entire political party on a narcissist who lies all the time and takes zero responsibility, it's not that shocking. Except facts are facts. Republicans did, in fact, rely on this supposedly credible informant up until two days ago, eight days after Smirnov was arrested for lying. Smirnov's claims were very much central to all of their talking points, which they repeated over and over again on Fox and Newsmax. And the worst part? They rushed. They rushed out to promote this 1023 affidavit, even though the FBI warned Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley and House Oversight Chairman James Comer that it should not be treated as fact. On May 22nd of last year, when the FBI agreed to show them Smirnov's claims, according to an FBI memo about that meeting, the deputy assistant director made it abundantly clear that Smirnov's testimony remained, quote, raw, unverified reporting from confidential human sources, and that recording this information does not validate it, establish its credibility, or weigh it against other information. The deputy assistant director makes a point of noting that Grassley and Comer were cautioned that raw, unverified source reporting may lack that important context. What does that mean? It means that these men knew that this material was not verified, and they chose to amplify it anyway. Don't believe me. Just listen to outgoing Republican Congressman Ken Buck. We were warned at the time that we received the uh, document uh, outlining this witness's testimony. We were warned that uh, the credibility of this statement was was not known. And yet uh, people, uh, my colleagues, went out and, and talked to the public about how this was credible and how it was damning and how uh, it, it proved President Biden's, uh, at the time, Vice President Biden's uh, complicity in receiving bribes. Um, it, it appears to absolutely be false and to really undercut the, the nature of the charges. 
Late this afternoon, a California judge who was asked by the Department of Justice to revisit a Nevada judge's decision to release Smirnoff granted a warrant for his rearrest. Smirnoff was taken into custody while he was meeting with his lawyers in Las Vegas. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a member of the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees. And Congressman, I mean, the way it normally works is that you get information, you verify it, and then you publicize it and act on it. They did the opposite. But I first want to get you to react to the fact that this man, Mr. Smirnoff, has been rearrested. Well, look, there's obviously a lot there in terms of his connection with foreign intelligence. Um, He said he had less than $15,000. He had $6 million to his name. And so the special counsel in the case, David Weiss, obviously had uh, some serious reasons for saying that an ankle bracelet was not enough. And uh, he convinced the court. But I'm just learning that from you right now. But I'm glad that he's not going to be able to abscond and disappear uh, because he's obviously now a crucial witness in terms of us figuring out how exactly they executed this plot of disinformation and propaganda against President Biden. You know, the thing that is more even more disturbing than the fact that this man made up an entire story upon which an impeachment inquiry was launched is that it does seem to me that senior Republicans knew that this was not credible information. You yourself, sir, um, were allowed on June 5th of last year to view, along with um, Mr. Grassley, Chuck Grassley, a version of this document, this document that's called the 1023. There had been a lot of fighting with Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, over whether this could be seen at all because he was sort of warning that this isn't really final information, but Republicans demanded that it be shown. There was some question in their mind about whether you should get to see it, because I'm sure they knew you would actually ask some questions. In your mind, do you believe that James Comer and Chuck Grassley knew that this information was false as they were peddling it on Fox and in other on other right wing news outlets? Well, I can't say that they knew. Um, I don't know whether or not they knew, but they had every reason to be extremely suspicious of it. And we were repeatedly warned by the FBI that these uh, FD 1023 forms are something uh, taken by an FBI agent interviewing someone. It could be a narco trafficker. It could be a terrorist. It could be an insurrectionist. Who knows who's giving the information? And so we were warned that there was no vouching for the credibility of the information that was reported. But they just took the football and they ran with it like 150 football fields worth to say, oh, we know that uh, Joe Biden took $5 million from Burisma and, you know, there's all of this corruption. And they built this wild goose chase. They've gotten egg all over their face ever since because it's been a comedy of errors because nobody has been able to verify or authenticate those statements and multiple individuals have completely debunked them including Lev Parnas who is Rudy Giuliani's right-hand man who wrote a letter to Chairman Comer and to me beseeching the committee to call it off saying there's absolutely nothing there he spent a large part of his life trying to find something to document it and there's nothing there and the whole thing was a political setup job from the beginning. And now we know that the Russians were involved. Yeah. And he's, we spoke with him yesterday on this very show, and he said exactly that. He took it all back and said, don't believe any of it. I do want to uh, allow you to comment on what do appear to be some very strong sanctions that the Biden administration is about to lay on Russia, some of the most, or I believe the strongest sanctions that we've seen since they invaded, since Russia invaded Ukraine. Your thoughts? 
Well, look, Putin and his team are killers. Um, they have staged this bloody fascist invasion of Ukraine in order to overthrow uh, democracy there and to deny people their national independence and sovereignty. Um, and they are working to destabilize and undermine political democracies all over the world. Um, the death of Navalny is a tragedy for humanity because he was uh, a great champion of freedom and democracy in Russia uh, and for human rights there. And uh, we can hope that his wife, Yulia, and his daughter, Dasha, and the rest of the family can carry on the work that Navalny was engaged in. But America needs to do whatever we can do to exact uh, sanctions against Putin. Obviously, they figured some uh, ways out to work around it. What we really need to do at this point is to get those $60 billion to people in Ukraine who are under the gun of these militarized drones and bombing attacks against uh, civilian installations and so on. We've got yeah. to uh, allow the bipartisan majority in the House and the Senate to get the money over there. And we will see uh, if that can be allowed to happen with this particular House of Representatives. Congressman Jamie Raskin, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And still ahead, how Trump stole the RNC. Trump's daughter-in-law thinks Republicans want to help pay Donald Trump soaring legal penalties and fees. But do they? I don't know. Maybe if she threw in a pair of nasty old gold high tops. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Donald Trump has a big money problem, and I'm not just talking the half a billion dollars plus that he owes for various legal cases. I'm talking about his fundraising numbers. The latest campaign finance reports show that not only did Trump's campaign raise less than both Joe Biden and Nikki Haley last month, he also spent millions more than he took in. So it should come as no surprise that his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, who he's attempting to install as number two at the RNC, is now suggesting that voters would totally be on board with the already cash-strapped committee footing Trump's legal bills. Do you think paying for uh, President Trump's legal bills is something that would, is, is of interest to Republican voters? Absolutely. That's why you've seen a GoFundMe get started. That's why people are furious right now and they see the attacks against him. They feel like it's an attack not just on Donald Trump, but on this country. Joining me now is Caden Dawson, former chair of South Carolina's Republican Party and surrogate for presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Uh, how are you doing, my friend? I shouldn't say my friend. I don't want to get you in trouble with your with your folks, but, but you are my friend. So I'm, thank you. Joy, they all know that. So yeah. I mean, we don't agree okay, on good. much, but we sure like each other. Yeah, good. So. 
Uh, I'm glad they know. So we've disclosed our, 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 that we're pals. Uh, let's talk about this. Is it true that Republican voters would be all too happy to pay Donald Trump's legal bills? No. <laughs> uh, there, 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 there are several things going on here. We, you got to remember, Donald Trump was the president of the United States, and, and we were for him. Then he lost. So Donald Trump promised us one thing. Remember, Joy, he said, you're going to get tired of all the winning. Well, I'm with Nikki Haley because I'm tired of all the losing. <laughs> we lost 2018. We lost 2020. We lost 2022. The Republican National Committee should have replaced Rona a long time ago. But I've talked to some Republican National Committee members today, and this isn't a slam dunk in March. They called a meeting in March in Houston. It's not done yet. It probably will be done. But Donald Trump last month took took eight million of eleven million raised and put it on on legal fees. So I think Nikki Haley is right about a lot of things, and I am for her, and I'm as excited about her candidacy and her success as I was excited about you getting your own show, Joy. I just <laughs> well, and, 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I want to ask you this, because this is the thing, is that Republicans, to me, it seems, have always had a way out. As you said, if people are tired of all the losing, it's not like there's no other choice, right? I mean, Nikki Haley has now competed in two primaries, one caucus and one primary with, with Donald Trump. She's going to compete in her home state of South Carolina. What do you think makes people still choose him when he does keep making them lose? They've got her. They would get a lot of the same policies. I got to tell you, Republican primary voters, especially in the South, have never looked downstream to concern themselves about winning the general election. They don't. They look and see, you know, you run elections off of hope, aspirations or fear. Trump does a good job with the word fear uh, and intimidation, and and it works. And, And there are a lot of folks in my party that think Donald Trump is standing in the gap between them and the federal government. And we have polled and found out that 72 percent of most of our population no longer trust the federal government. And hell, I don't blame them. They no longer. And that's on both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans. They don't trust the federal government. And there is a malaise out there. There is fear out there. And when you start running elections on that, Donald Trump needs a smaller Republican Party. Nikki Haley needs a bigger Republican Party. Um, uh, you know, I love the fact that they've been labeling my friend Nikki Haley as a moderate. Boy, will they be disappointed with that, okay? Uh, so yeah. we'll see. There's still a race going on. Donald Trump wants us out the way so he can control all the money. He wants the RNC to be completely controlled. I, I, I don't know Laura Trump. I know Donald Trump, but she's probably never been to a Republican Party meeting. I mean, these are, these are, these are members from all over the country that institution is 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 damaged and and I'm not sure she'll probably get what she wants. The North Carolina chairman will probably be the chairman. Yeah. And then he'll probably use the money to pay his legal bills. And then there won't and be money for the Senate. down ticket candidates. I don't know how you run elections it, it, if he's it, using it, all the money. It, how about the Senate and the House? You right. can win the presidency and you can get yourself a week's worth of executive orders. I got it. You can't get anything else if you don't have the House and the Senate. Now what we do know on my friend Nikki Haley's campaign is, we don't get anything but Donald Trump if he wins. We don't get the House and Senate. And living proof is we lost two United States Senate seats in Georgia, Julie. In Georgia. (laughs) That was when the alarm bell went off with me. Yeah. Real quick, before we we have to go, how is uh, Nikki Haley going to do in her home state? Give us a prediction. I, I can't do that yet. I can just tell you we're working our butts off. 
Nikki's done done everything she can do. We've got money pouring in. We've got message. We've got hope and aspirations. My nine-year-old granddaughter went this morning after she got off of school and put up yard signs in her neighborhood with a Nikki Haley shirt on. And you know what she told me, Joy? I asked her, she said, tell me why you're doing this. And she calls me Big Kate. And she said, Big Kate, because girls rule. And I said, that's all (laughs) I got to know. If Nikki Haley's getting my nine-year-old daughter out of the granddaughter, and maybe my three-year-old granddaughter Poppy can do it one day, I think this is the 1919 race where women got the right to vote. And that's what we need. Well, let, well, do me a favor. Tell your candidate we'd like to have her on the readout. Tell her we'd love to have her on and tell her it's a great place to be. She would be very much welcome. Kate and Dawson, my friend, thank you very much. I appreciate you. Best of luck. Thanks. Cheers. And still ahead, Kemba Smith, whose life story inspired the powerful new film Kemba, along with the film's director and actress June Carroll, who happens to be my real life sister. Join me next to talk about their remarkable new film. We'll be right back. Since the 1970s, millions of Americans, mostly black and brown, have been railroaded into prison to serve decades-long, sometimes life sentences, for minor or nonviolent drug offenses, a la all the result of the U.S. war on drugs. That was, that was the case for Kemba Smith, a black woman who in 1994 received a nearly 25-year sentence while pregnant for the crimes of her drug-dealing boyfriend. Now, a new film is shining a light on Kemba's story and how she, with the help of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, fought for clemency and justice. This is a college girl from my hometown. She got caught up. If it can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. Okay, I get it. But as a nonprofit funded by donations, you know we have limited resources. Would this case even make big enough impact to make a difference? impact. Ted, if every woman who ever fell in love with the wrong guy got 24 and a half years in prison, you wouldn't have ever met me. There wouldn't be any women of any color on the streets. Joining me now is Kemba Smith human rights and social justice activist, along with Kelly Kelly, director of the new film Kemba, and actress June Carroll, who plays the role of attorney Elaine Jones, and who also happens to be my real-life sister. Thank you all for being here. Uh, it's great to see all of you. I do want to start with you, uh, Kemba, my soror. Talk to me about why you wanted this story to be a film so that people could relive, unfortunately, the, some of the most unfortunate things that happened to you. Well, um, it actually took the president of the United States and a huge movement um, to free me. And most people don't have the legal defense fund or two parents out there on the speaking circuit speaking about their ordeal. And so um, when I walked off the prison yard and the movie wasn't able to capture everything, um, there was an outcry of women because the whole prison was locked down and they were wishing me well. And as I was walking out, there was no Toyota chick moment. Like I was mourning inside because I felt as if other women deserved a second chance too. And so it was important for me once I walked out of the prison doors to continue to be a human face and humanize uh, mass incarceration and understanding women and families and how it impacts families. So it just was a passion of mine from the social justice, criminal justice standpoint, but also to prevent the school to prison pipeline 
because I'm very transparent about the choices that were made and as you spoke about the trauma that I endured. We're going to look at your audio and see if we can get that to be improved just a little bit. But I'm going to go to June uh, next. Hey, June, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, talk to me about playing this role of Elaine Jones, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, a storied civil rights agency, one of the most important agencies that's ever existed in the U.S. What was it like to play that role? And what do you think the importance of this film is? Uh, playing your role was daunting. Elaine is phenomenal. She's an incredible personality, formidable. And uh, it was just such an honor to be a part of the film at all in any way, shape or form. I think something the film does incredibly well is capture the psychology that sucks someone into victimhood and how the system plays on that victimhood and re-victimizes people who have already suffered. Um, and I think that uh, Kemba's story is shared by so many people that you just, for that reason alone, that it happened to more than one person, if it can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and Kelly, I, I know I've heard you talk about this in other interviews because there's another woman named Michelle West to whom this is still happening. So this is an ongoing story. And we know statistically, um, in terms of imprisonment rates by race and ethnicity, 901 out of every 100,000 um, residents in prisons are black. Um, the Native American, indigenous, 763 out of 100,000. Latinx, 434. White, 181. Asian, 72 out of 100,000. This is an ongoing issue mm -hmm. that is very not race. It's race determinative in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. And when I, this, this happened to my family. That's the thing is that when it comes to our black communities and people of color, we know of these issues. And this is why we are grateful for you to get this word out on platforms that cross over so that all, because this affects America. Yeah. It is an American issue. It is a bipartisan issue. And so I, to, to know that when Kimba was put in, that the disparity between cocaine and crack cocaine was 100 to 1 when it's the same drug, just processed differently. We see who they're targeting. And yes, it was reduced to 18 to 1, but it needs to be 1 to 1. There is inequality all throughout with mandatory minimum sentencing laws, not taking into a, a, in consideration the individual circumstances, taking away the judge's rights to be able to have their own ability to determine whether or not this person should get those minimums. Uh, it's a big, big issue. And I, I'm so happy we we're able to tell her story in a film format that can get into people's homes because we need to rally behind people like Kimba and Michelle West, who is yeah. currently incarcerated, has been there for over 30 years on a first offense and has two life sentences plus 50 years. Yeah. And Kemba, what do you want to see change in this system? So there's a social impact campaign that's being launched with my film. It's not just about Kemba. Mm -hmm. um, so we're urging President Biden to commute Michelle lessons and additional sentences um, in governors across the country to use this act of mercy, but we also want to look at central legislation um, across the country that for And then um, dissecting this issue of women who are in abusive situations, relationships, and basically being criminalized as survivors. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep. So we're hoping uh, that and the, the audio is a little bit uh, tight, different to hear. So I'm going to ask Kelly to just reiterate that the social impact campaign. Tell us a little bit about that in our last few minutes. Yes, the social impact campaign uh, of this film using Kimba's story to help bring awareness to someone who helped her while she was incarcerated, Michelle West. Yeah. She is we are pushing for her clemency this year. We are pushing for President Biden to grant her clemency. And we are mm -hmm. using this film to be able to bring awareness to her to rally the same amount of support yeah. as Kimba got, because mm -hmm. it takes that it takes the community. Yeah. It takes all of us to step yeah. up. Indeed. Uh, Kemba Smith, Kelly Callie, June Carroll, thank you all very much. Uh, it is an important film. You can stream Kemba on BET Plus right now. Well, maybe not right right now uh, on BET Plus because there's still more readout ahead. Stay with us. Before we go, be sure to check out the reconstruction on the readout blog. This new project highlights experts who are rebuilding the nation's historical memory. We spoke with the family of Madam C.J. Walker, the extraordinary hair care millionaire, on their fight against Republican whitewashing. And each Friday, stay tuned for more interviews with our friend Bishop William Barber and more surprise guests at msnbc.com slash readoutblog. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.